This podcast is a Tucker Media production. For more information, head to tuckermedia.com.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Janine Moore from Catablog and Publicity for Profit. Prior to establishing her own business, Janine had an extensive career in radio, starting in Inverell, then moving on to Newcastle before ending up in Sydney with 2UE and 2GB. She chats about working for radio legend John Laws, what makes a good producer, and playing an April Fool's Day prank on Ray Hadley. Janine is someone I've known for about 15 years and one of the nicest people I've ever met. So I really hope you enjoy our chat. Janine Moore, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. Thanks, Ralphie. Glad to be here. Now, I'm very excited because you're part of the first husband and wife team to be on Media Mates because Andrew was back there in episode number one. I can't believe you went for him first before me. What? <laughs> you know, very exciting to be uh, team number one. Very exciting. Now, you, of course, had your own media career, which we'll touch on later, but you've headed in a different direction in recent times. You've got your own business called Catablog. Tell us about mm-hmm. that. Uh, Catablog is an online directory of bloggers and influencers. So if you're into influencer marketing, you can come to Catablog and find the influencers to connect with. So that's been a really big, um, I guess, a, a really exciting venture for me because it's it's taken me from in the media to actually starting up a business. So I've got to say hats off to anyone that goes into their own business because it really is a hard slog. I just thought it would be really simple. You just sort of make it happen and and build the business and then it would just work. But you've got to really keep pushing and pushing and and as you're going along, you learn so much. So I'm I'm excited with how much I've learned. So, yeah, so with Catablog, um, it's been about two years so far, uh, maybe a year before that, where I would uh, do a bit of work on it. Um, and I basically got into it because after I left radio, I um, I had two small children and I really wanted to really work from home. I'd just be there for school, pick up and drop off and, and be there with Andrew. So I wanted something that, that had flexibility that was really important to me. So that's why I created it. And then when I did that, I realised that one of my biggest clients was PR agencies because um, they're always looking for influencers. So I thought, okay, I've created this business and I'm talking to PR agencies. I'm thinking like a journalist when really I need to think like a PR agent. So I decided the best way to figure that out and to get into their mindset was actually to do some PR. So I ended up teaming up with Sue Papadoulis from Publicity for Profit and I do some PR for some clients and work with her teaching businesses how to get publicity in the media. And that's been really great for me as well because I've really got to understand the PR side of things a lot more. Um, I know that when you're a journalist, you kind of look at the PR side as the dark side and you don't want to go over to it, um, even though it often pays a lot more than than journalism. Um, 
but yeah, it's been really good for me to to see to see all the different sides and to keep up with the influence of marketing, what's happening there, what's happening in PR, and and because I'm doing the PR, I'm still interactingly interacting with journalists, so which is really nice. I was going to say, working with Sue, who's obviously established a business identifying what the issues were between companies that were looking to get their name out there and also journalists. So you have that nice little mix where you can sort of act as that intermediary. Yes, definitely. She's really hit on a niche because oh, there's just such a growth now of small business owners. Like, And everyone is really wanting flexibility. There's so many people out there that, that have an idea, they're really passionate about something and they want to follow that. And then by following that, they're really working not for a living but they're working because they want to be working they want to follow their dream and things happen and and a lot of people I find are really getting out of their comfort zone you know 50 years ago people would you know do a job and and stay in it for life or be in it for you know 20 years now everyone's in it for a couple of years and they change and keep moving and I tend to think that's a good thing because you're learning new skills and I think the one thing I look back now with um with my career and what I've done and, and mind you, I am still quite young, just want to put that out there. Um, <laughs> um, I just think like the people that you come across, I just, you learn so much from the people around you, which is a good thing. Let's go way back to where it all sort of began for you in media. When you look back, was that something that you always wanted to to get into when you were in school? No, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Even when I finished year 12 and did my HSC, I still I had no idea. I didn't want to go to university. I was never a big studier. Like I, I did my schooling and I did well, um, but I never, I at the thought of going and studying for another three years really I didn't like the idea of it. So I ended up coming across Maclay College and I liked that it was a one-year course and it was really practical. I'm a very practical sort of hands-on person rather than sit there reading the books and writing essays. So I, um, so yeah, I ended up going to Maclay College and I was there for a year and funnily enough, my radio lecturer, oh, he bored me to tears. I'm sure he's a lovely chap. But goodness, it was the only part of the course in journalism I didn't like. So for me, I was not ever going to do radio. So I wanted to be a feature writer. So with part of the course, you have to actually go and do work experience. So I could not get into anywhere with feature writing in the magazines world. I tried, but everything was full up for work experience for like 12 months. So I ended up getting some work experience at the Today Show. And then I got some at Channel 10. And that's where I ended up going towards radio because Lloyd-Jones, who was working at Channel 10, said to me, if you want to work in television, then you need to really go and work in radio because anyone that can work in radio can get a job easily in in television because they can, you know, they can ad-lib, they can really work to deadlines fast. So I thought, oh, okay, and I didn't know anyone in radio and I didn't really listen much in my lectures for radio, so I really didn't know anything about it. So he Who said to me... Who was the boring guy? <laughs> no, I'm not going to say. <laughs> no, 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 I will not say. But anyway, um, he... Um, oh, no, I won't say. But um, so Lloyd-Jones said to me, you know what, why don't you ring Murray Olds, Buzzard, and say to him that you're a friend of mine and that you want to get into radio? And I said, oh, okay, that, I'll do that. So I rang Buzzard and he was so, you know, as Buzzard is, the friendliest chap on earth. 
Um, he, was, so, uh, he was the news director at 2UE at the time, right? Yes, yes, he was. So he said to me, well, why don't you come in and see the place and I'll show you around. So I said, oh, yeah, that's fine. I'd love to. Awesome. So I was so excited. So I went in to 2UE and he literally gave me a quick tour of the place and, you know, he's just friendly as. And then we went into his office and while I was in there, he got a phone call from Greg Cachel, who was the uh, station manager at 2NZ in Inverell. So he's on the phone to to Greg and says, um, yes, no, I've got just the perfect person. She'll be perfect. Um, I'll get her to send her CV. So he's put the phone down and he says to me, all right, how do you feel like going to um, Inverell? Do you want to go there? And I'm like, oh, what? And he's like, oh, I've got, there's a job going. It's a cadet ship. It'd be perfect for you. Um, so go for it. I'd never heard of Inverell, didn't know where it was. And it's a, it's a town in the northwest of the state with about 10,000 people that live there. Anyway, so I said to him, I said to Buzzard, okay, I'll, I'll send my CV, but, you know, what else should I do to try and get into radio? He goes, that's it. You'll get into radio. So I was like, oh, okay. So anyway, I sent my job, uh, my application to Greg Cachel and, um, and on the day that um, a couple of days later I found out that I had glandular fever and was quite ill and then um, and then Greg Cachel said, oh, can you start on Monday? So I was like, oh, for sure. So anyway, I started my first job in radio with glandular fever and I turned up on Monday morning for work and Greg Cachel had been taken to hospital. So I had no one to train me and I just had to really sink or swim and uh, it was a lot of fun. So I ended up, I was doing um, the breakfast news there and Luke Grant was the breakfast announcer who now fills in on Radio 2GB. So had a lot of fun times in Inverell, a lot of practical pranks played on people. Um, yeah, it was good. Were you still studying then at that stage? Did you quit your course or how did it actually work that you ended up in Inverell? No, I finished the course. So I did all the work experience when I was there at Channel 10 and today's show, and I did it right at the end of the course. Right. So I pretty much I had finished and graduated, and then that all happened. So it was really good. And then uh, when I was in Pharrell, I was in there for 12 months, and then I decided that I really was time to move on. I, I really wanted to get – I was really career-focused, really career-focused. Like when I was in Pharrell, I pretty much would be at work from – five in the morning and I'd stay there till, you know, five in the afternoon because back then as well I had a little typewriter. There was no internet. There was no getting stories off anywhere. I had to go to the council meetings. We had to ring up all the farmers in the area and all the industry bodies in the area and actually ask them what's going on and, and, and create stories. So there was a lot of work to do and, and it was really great grounding for me because I had to learn how to find a story and figure out that it was a story. So it was great. Who taught you those things? Oh, it's just one of those things you sort of learnt as you go along from people around you. Um, it wasn't really anyone in the newsroom with me. Greg Cachel sort of guided me a bit once he got out of hospital. So, you know, I just, I guess I just learnt. And the other thing was um, I used to listen to tapes. Oh, my gosh, I, I would spend hours listening to, this sounds really nerdy, doesn't it, but listening to other news readers. <laughs> and I would just, I just wanted to be one of those ones in Sydney reading the news. That's what I wanted to do in the end. Like I just had this actual fire lit under me with, when I started working in radio. I think it's one of those industries that just gets in your blood and once it's in there, you just, oh, I loved it so much. So, yeah, so anyway, I'd been there for a year and I just felt like I'd learned as much as I could and I needed to go 
forward um, and I wanted to work somewhere else where it was a bigger newsroom and I could learn more off other people. Um, so I ended up ringing Warren Moore at 2HD when he was the news director and he's a lovely guy as well. Um, I don't have a bad word to say about him, but um, he did say to me on the phone, look, look, you're just too green. I think you need another 12 months in Inverell. And I just, oh, the thought of that, like as much as I loved Inverell and the great people, I just wanted, I was ready to move on. So I was so determined then. I was like, right, I'm not too green. I am going to get somewhere else. So I started sending the tapes everywhere. And then two weeks later, I ended up getting a call from KOFM and NXFM in Newcastle, and which was the competing station to the one that Warren Moore was at. And they said, come on up, uh, we'd love you to come and do breakfast news. So that was great. There was only one other person in the newsroom, which was Paul Drake at the time. So I got to learn a little bit from him, um, a funny chap. He's <laughs> He was bald, but he always wore a wet flannel on top of his head. And every morning, well, he would get sweaty. So it was hot all the time. <laughs> I just always remember thinking, I work with somebody that wears a flannel on their head. But he was a nice guy as well. So, you know, everyone, there's some quirky people in radio, I've got to say. So anyway, so then I did 12 months in uh, Newcastle. And had a great time there and learnt a lot. And then I ended, and the same thing happened to me again. It was the general manager. I'd been really at her to say, look, I want to move to Today FM and do um, news there. I want That's what I want to do. And I was still listening to tapes of everyone and I was getting the program director to help me, the sound of my voice and, you know, help, you know, improve it. I was really committed. And then she was, um, her background was a, accounting and it was when they started to change um they started to bring sort of the bean counters in a bit more into radio so but she said to me oh you've got it you're too green so I got that again and um a lot of green oh no I was very green I wanted to be purple or something but green anyway <laughs> so she had said that to me which then just you know gets me really like oh I'm going to do this so it makes you more determined and um so two weeks later I handed in my resignation which I was most excited about because I'd got a job at 2UE so I was like well I'm not too green for them so I was very excited and and then and ended up at 2UE doing around the grounds like reporting and and going out on the road and which I loved but you know, I think back now, like we have GPS. So here I am, this Newcastle girl, and I had no idea about Sydney. And Sydney is a big place when you, you know, you live in Newcastle. And I just getting around. So, you know, they'd give you 20 minutes to get to a job that really took half an hour to get to. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get lost again. So anyway, I always think back now thinking how much better it would have been if I had a GPS. <laughs> So how did it happen then that you got the job at 2UE having been rejected by a, a few others? Did you send the, the tape back then to, to Murray Olds? How was it that they um, they came back to you and said, we've got a, a job for you in Sydney? Uh, well, when I was doing the breakfast show at KO and NXFM, I ended up becoming um, very friendly with the news um the newsroom really there because any time there was a story that broke in Newcastle, I would just automatically file it to uh, to UE. And Stuart Bocking was the breakfast editor then, and so we ended up getting a good working relationship happening. If anything um, happened, and there was a story that I broke, which was the Gretley coal mine disaster, 
Um, so I so I really sort of, I guess, made my mark with them because they knew they could rely if anything was happening and I could feed them stories that no one else had. And then um, I think after that Gretley coal mine disaster, because it was such a big story where these miners had got trapped and died and, and then all of a sudden I did get in trouble because I should have been filing to Today FM, um, you know, but that's not something that they, that is a story that they would have wanted. But all the other ones that were I was filing to to you, you know, they they didn't realise they were getting from me. So it was a case. It was, it was a weird sort of setup because Today FM had, I guess, uh, ownership or had some sort of connection there to the Newcastle stations and so did 2UE. So I'd imagine you worked out pretty quickly where the um, the interest was in terms of mm-hmm. who wanted the story the most. Yeah, yeah exactly. And um, and then in the end, because I'd gotten such a really good relationship with the people in the newsroom at 2UE and I liked them, like I just, you know, and they were so professional and I just, and I wanted to learn from them. That's That was where my heart was. I wanted to go there. So I would obviously just feed them the story. So and that's how I ended up um, going there. But it was funny because I bought a mortgage. I, I bought a house when I was in Newcastle, and and as anyone that's in radio knows, you know, a lot of the time you struggle on Struggle Street because um, you know it's not the best the best industry unless you're making millions uh, for money money wise. And uh, so I remember I had to take a ten thousand dollar pay cut, which was huge. <laughs> For me to go from Newcastle to Sydney and I had a mortgage and then I had to pay rent in Sydney. So I was like, what am I doing? But anyway, it was the best decision I made. Like I was always going to go. It didn't matter about the money. I just wanted to be there. Let's go back a step. Who were the people that you used to listen to when you were in Inverell and Newcastle that, oh. that made such an impression on you that wanted you to make yourself get better as a, as a newsreader? Oh, I love Sandy Aloisi's voice. I loved Rebecca Barrett's voice. I loved so they're all pretty much two way. I did listen to the FMs, but um, I don't remember their names as much. This I can't remember. But I, I always, I guess, my favourite voices would be Sandy's and um, Rebecca Barrett's. I loved hers as well. I think she was a great reader, and I, I like Bronwyn Martin's. And and when I ended up working at to you, I just think Bronwyn was one of the best editors I've ever seen of in news. Like she was just amazing. So it was such a talented pool when I went there. Like just to learn from them and the sound of them, but also their editing skills and you know, just it was a great learning ground for me. I was going to say that that Two UE newsroom uh, back then, when they were the top rating station, they had such a, a rich history in news and current affairs. There would have been so many uh, people in the the newsroom that you were able to uh, learn from. Oh, there was a heap. Like it was Ian Craven. I still remember one time he was filling in on nights because someone was sick, and because normally he was out doing courts or what have you, and. Um, the computer system went bust, so he had a 10-minute bulletin and he ad-libbed the whole lot. And I was just like, who does that? <laughs> How just... could you do it? I don't think there'd be any newsreaders capable of actually doing it. Oh, there might be a couple. I think uh, I uh, think Glenn Daniel might be able to do it these days, yeah. but I don't think there'd be many others that would have that um, uh, ability to do that. It was just like 10 minutes. That's a hard slog to go with no audio and just to keep going and, he was amazing. Like I, I just, I just thought that was amazing. And then it was Chris Myers. He was great. Lance Northey, great. Like it's just, 
Rosa, Justin Kelly, like they're all just they were and they were colourful characters as well. Like you know, they're always doing something funny, and it was all good fun. It was always a good laugh, but everyone worked hard. It was good. So, how was it then that you made your way from the newsroom into programs? Because that's where you managed to make your name. You work with some of the industry heavyweights like John Laws and and Ray Hadley. So, how was it that you were loving doing? being a newsreader and being a reporter in that, that great 2UE newsroom, um, how long did that last and then what made you move on to the program side of things? Well, I was in news, in the 2UE newsroom for oh, a couple of years and then and then I decided that my, what I really wanted to do was, was to be a news editor and a newsreader rather than out on the road and so then I decided, which was something no one had ever done, was leave to UE and go and work in that Sky News booth for Sky News. So, and the reason I did that was um, I wanted to just be reading news. So no one seemed to be moving in, in obviously the area of news reading. And realistically, I was, you know, you know, a, a little way back in line. Um, so I thought, you know what, why don't I go into the news, the Sky News booth and, and read the news um, constantly so that then I can get better at it. So that was my thinking. And, and obviously when I did that, everyone in the 2UE newsroom did think it was a bit strange and said, you know, you're the only person that's ever done that. Most people are desperate to get into our newsroom. So I'm like, I know, I know, but I want to get better as a newsreader and, and just see how that goes. This was the sky that was um, syndicated around the, yes, the country. Yes, yes, yes. So I ended up doing that for about nine months and then I got um, Sandy convinced me to come back into the newsroom, which I did, and then I ended up reading uh, the weekend news and in the afternoon. So I read the weekend news in the afternoon, and um, which was during the continuous call, and Sandy said this is the first time we've had a female newsreader on with Ray doing with, when he's got the continuous call on. So, you know, so make sure you go well. And um, anyway, so the first news bulletin I ever did for him, um, I didn't time out correctly. Oh, God. I think I was three seconds off. So I was nervous anyway doing it. And um, sure enough, straight after I'd come out of the uh, news booth, you know, the phone's ringing and then I just get a bit of a, a talking to in a very loud voice about don't ever do that again, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, oh, my gosh, which made me even more nervous. But um, A few swear words. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I never, ever – I got really good at timing out very quickly. <laughs> oh, gosh. So I never did that again. But then um, – You wouldn't have been the first and I'm sure oh, you're not no, the last. Oh, no, no, gosh, no. <laughs> anyway, um, and then also John Brennan was such a – I guess a mentor. He took quite a liking to me with my skill set, and he always wanted to me to be in programs. And so, uh, an opportunity came up to produce for Malcolm T. Elliott on a Sunday. So I would wor- work in the newsroom during the week, but then I would do the afternoon newsreader um, on a sun- uh, Saturday and Sunday afternoon. But on the Sunday morning, I would produce for. Malcolm T. Elliott. So I did kind of a, a double shift Sundays. It was a long day, but but I mean he, I mean he's just you know out there crazy zany, but a lot of fun. And I did learn a lot from him as well, just in regards to how programs work and how to get callers to call up and what's going to interest them and, and and how the show comes together. So he he gave me some really good grounding. And Breno was you know great. 
so that sort of got me into programs a little bit, but I was not ready to leave the newsroom because I really enjoyed it still. And then when Michael Hibbard took over as program director, he ended up convincing me to do work with Prue McSween. So, and Prue is so lovely and now a very good friend of mine. Um, she's just got a great heart of gold. So I produced for her on nights. But it was quite a funny relationship because I, I think I'm a bit naive and she's, you know, very worldly. So often I would write editorials thinking that she would have a particular point of view and and there's one instance I'll always remember when, when um, it was about there was a discussion in the news about whether or not the pill should be given to students at school. So I, of course, said no. Gosh, no, you wouldn't be handing out the contraceptive pill to students at a school. What a you know, ridiculous idea. So I wrote that and, and put all my points forward. And I remember she came in and, you know, she was kind of like one of those people that lit up the room when she walks in and say, you know, oh, I was all very excited to see her. And she starts reading this and she goes, who wrote this rubbish? <laughs> and, and I'm like, what? Anyway, um, she didn't agree with me and she thought, yes, the contraceptive pill should be handed out. So there was often many times like that where we would have differing views. And so she was always, she always surprised me, but it was, she was great fun to work with. How difficult is it trying to get into the head of somebody else in that particular instance where you kind of get an idea of what you think they would say and then they, they go down the opposite path? I'd imagine <laughs> it's particularly with people like Prue McSween and, and Malcolm mm. T. Elliott who perhaps ventured more on the entertainment side of things more so mm. than the, the serious sort of news events but you would have had to have covered all particular areas with them. I think that's one of a really good skill a producer needs to have and they have to want to have that. They have to want to get to know their announcer and I think once they do get to know them they have to understand at the end of the day it is their show and it is good to have um, you know disagreements off the air but at the end of the day they have the last say and it's their opinion that's coming out. So you need to write for their opinion and and you try to think how they would think so that when they're on 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 the air, like they're in they're in a booth and really sometimes they feel a bit disconnected of what's happening outside. So you really need to make sure they feel connected and and that's why, you know, I think shows that succeed are often the ones that the talent is having fun on air and the and you can see it if you walked out to the studio area and if everyone in the like the producers are all very quiet and they look like they're bored or they're not even really you know interacting with the announcer then the, I don't think they're going to go well but you go into the atmosphere where the the it's thriving and everyone's laughing and having a great time or or if there's like you know serious news stuff happening and it's breaking you know they're right on it and they're interacting and engaging and and the announcer feels like every time they look up to see their staff that you know they're engaged but if they look up and they're not engaged then you know there's not that vibe and and I think that comes out on air like so that I think that can help help us show succeed so it's re- I think it's really important that who produces the announcer because if they get on well and they have that connection and a producer can think how they're going to think and they always are one step ahead, I think that's the thing you've got to be one step ahead of the announcer so that when they ask for something, they don't need to ask for it because you've already got it for them. So everything's there. But also you can have a bit of fun um, when you actually do get to know your announcer because um, 
obviously Ray Hadley is renowned as, you know, with a temper and and whatever else. But um, there was one thing I used to love doing with Sophie and Sarah in the office. He would be very uncomfortable with affection. We used to have fun and go, oh, hug for Ray, hug for Ray, and, you know, give a big hug or just do something that would just, you know, put him a bit at, you know, not at ease and, and have fun with that. And he knew we would be having fun with that. So it ended up being fun. Or or once we played a practical joke on him on April Fool's Day and what we did was we decided to tell Bravo, John Redman, that he had to be on, in on this practical joke and Bravo used to get picked up from by Ray every morning to come to work when he first started right? And we said to him, you need to say to Ray that there was people there at the office measuring up because they're going to actually put him in with the girls, with us and and Bravo, and, and he would lose his office. So you have to make out because he was kind of new and Ray would never think they do do that. <laughs> so, so anyway, he, um, he said, oh, look, Ray doesn't even talk to me when I'm in, in the car. Like we're not allowed to, I'm not allowed to speak. I'm like, oh, well, you know, we'll speak and just sort of say because he'll be interested if he thinks that someone's going to actually move him out of his office because it's his office and he likes a big office. So anyway, so he did that and then Ray has come in in the filthiest mood and, you know, door slamming and he's on the phone probably to sing her just, you know, saying, I'm not moving my office and blah, blah, blah. And and it was just so funny. We had Max Donnelly coming out with a tape measure. He was the chairman back then and coming out to, you know, that morning and he was in on the joke, sort of, you know, just saying, oh, we're just, we're just thinking about it. And, oh, it was hilarious. And then obviously it was April Fool's Day and, and we got him. So it was, it was quite fun. What was Ray's reaction once he knew that he'd been caught out? Because I can imagine that scene where he would have been in a, a real huff and a bluster and there would have been swear words exchanged and, like you said, there was phone calls back and forth. I can imagine. <laughs> that, how did the, the joke get revealed in the end and, and what was Ray's reaction? Because that I've never heard that story before, but that's an absolute cracker. Yeah, no. He yeah, he wasn't he wasn't happy, but it was but it was funny because it got to the point where we realized we could go too far with this and he was just he was just getting too riled up. So it got to a point where Sophie and I said, we've got to tell him otherwise this is gonna really backfire and it's gonna get out of hand. So because he was so angry. So um so we ended up saying April Fools all together, and which was hilarious. But he so then he goes, "Oh, you think you're very funny, don't you? You think you're so funny, <laughs> right?" So and then he goes, "All right, well let's get Bowen out of bed, and we'll get him. Uh, we'll get a him with an April Fool's Day. Tell him he's got to get in here right now because it was like you know seven thirty by this time, and Bowen oh. was still sound asleep. So he then took the attention off him, which he'll often do, and and put it on someone else. Let's backtrack again to going back and, and working for TUE. Before you worked with Ray, you worked with John Laws. Now, how was that experience for you? Because obviously. He's a legend of the the radio industry and he's you coming in, you know, worked in the newsroom and then all of a sudden, you know, you've been working on nights for for Prue McSween and then you get to work for John Laws, the greatest radio talent that's ever been in Australia. Yeah, that was was so exciting. I was so excited to get that job. I remember 
um, when I got the call to come in and I came in to see the program director, I think it was Michael Hibbard at the time, and I was in his office and I just remember because I was to meet John that, that morning and I just remember I had so many people coming in to check I was wearing a skirt. They're like, I remember Jodie coming in saying, oh, good, you've got the skirt on, excellent, make sure you always wear a skirt because he's renowned that he likes his handmaidens to wear a skirt. So, you know, did that and and it, it was just a very quick process. Someone had left um, it was, uh, what was his name from the papers? Chesterton. Ray, Ray Chesterton. Chesterton. Yes, yes. So he had left and, and I took his spot and was working with Stuart Bocking and Kim Harvey was in there as well. So, uh, and John was very, um, I think, you know, I think he's extremely talented, uh, very good at what he does. Um, I think he's shy a bit, which I don't, as people wouldn't probably realise, but I, I do think he is. Um, and I always found him a little bit intimidating. Nicest person, but I always felt like I didn't, I couldn't let my guard down kind of thing. I just never really relaxed around him. Um, because I, what age are you here, 23, 24? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was young. I was about 22. Yeah, 22, I think, 23. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so it was quite amazing and and. And he was quite quirky as well. So, you know, we'd go, he would take, he was always very kind. Um, he took us out to lunch a lot. And and when we'd go out to lunch, I remember the first time I ever went, it was such a, a song and dance about where we sat and you had to sit girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy. So, um, yeah, so that that's what we did. I don't know if it's an old-fashioned thing or we just thought it was good to mix everyone up. Um yeah, so that's that's what we did, and and we got to go to his farm once, which was you know just amazing. It was just you know he was showing us around, and you know the fireplace was you know brought in from France, and this was here, and it was just it was a whole other world that my eyes were opened up to, and so you know, and he was just such a nice guy, but not someone that, you know, you'd ring up and have a laugh with. Like with Prue, I'd ring her at any time of the day and, and have a laugh. That that didn't happen with Laws. It was pretty much any communication really during the show um, went through Stuart or Jody. But, you know, sometimes you would talk to him. But, yeah, so it was it was pretty amazing work with, with such a legend. But there is an interesting story and, and I just I feel that he's a real class act, like, so um, I remember when I was working with Ray, and I don't think very many people know this story at all, but, and I'm not even sure I should be telling it, but um, Ray, after Ray had a big rating swing win and uh, Laws didn't, um, Ray wrote a letter to John, basically, I guess, skiting that, you know, he um, had had a big rating swing. And um, a couple of days later, the letter came back and it was returned to sender. So John hadn't even opened it. <laughs> So I thought that's classy. He knew <laughs> what was he knew what was coming. He, he probably knew. knew what was in it, and yeah. uh, he didn't want to dignify it with a, a response. Yeah. And I'm sure um, yeah. Ray, you know, in his own way, would have got the message then that that was the the case. Yeah, yeah. So it was just, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the reaction he was expecting. Ray was expecting. So it was just, you know, I just thought, well, that's that's just laws. He's just very classy. Tell me so. about that like what is it like to work for a guy that had such an aura and he was such a um and still is he's still presenting on on 2sm these days if you just 
think about he had just such a great ability to know how to use talkback radio and 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 the flow of the program and you know what stings to play when when back in the day you would have been there that it still would have been operated on carts so he would have had like 30 or 40 carts at one stage and then he's got to play the ads and to me for someone that is a bit of a, a radio nerd just listening to that program there was sort of like an an artistry to it and he was the the controller of all of it what was it like just being behind the scenes and seeing all of that stuff work. Oh, it was just, uh, uh, it was amazing, really. And I just think he was really at a, another level to anyone else I'd ever seen um, work because he just, you know, some announcers back then, they'd often like, you know, you could hear them, you know, really asking for callers to ring, whereas John was just, he'd never ask anyone to ring. He would just say his opinion and, and at some point he'd give a number, but he'd never ask the listener to call in, but he always had a full board of calls. So he just, just the way he did things, it was just, it was very polished and obviously he'd been doing it for so long and, and even just the way he would talk to callers, like that's one of the best things about what he does and, you know, and how he would cut callers off. It was just, you know, he's just, he just knows it. He's just, that's his talent. And, and when he interviews celebrities he's just like that's another talent of his like he was just it's very polished like very polished so I did learn a lot working in there I think just on that is that back in the day when radio was in its heyday and more social media seems to dominate news more so these days in terms of you know when it breaks but the John Laws program had this uncanny knack like you said when he had this really great interview style that he would set the agenda and break the news. So prime ministers would be pretty much begging to get on the John Laws program because they knew the audience that it could reach and he could make or break politicians just by having them on his program. Yeah, definitely, definitely. They're just the power they have and I think they still have power today, some of them, like, you know, set the agenda. I still think Alan Jones sets the agenda often for the day. So they do. They have amazing power. And I guess like, you know, you look at um, Richard Glover said the other day about how, you know, 10 years ago you'd never think to um, be quoting what a celebrity says as as news and yet everyone's talking about what Sonia Kruger says. So I think it's really in today's world, like what's what's coming out of presenters and announcers and celebrities' mouths is really, you know, shaping news, whereas 10 years ago it didn't. And, and maybe that's because of social media and it's so much easier to hear what celebrities and people are saying. Do you know what I mean? I just, I don't know, it's interesting how news and, and what's worthy of news is, is changing. It certainly has, has changed a lot. One thing that you touched on a little bit earlier when you started working in the 2UE newsroom or you got the call to to come back and and work there and you were working on the weekends and you were reading in the the afternoons and you were producing the show for Malcolm T. Elliott in the morning, that would have been something that because you were so career-focused you wouldn't have thought anything of, whereas these days I think the younger people that are coming through anything to do with a, a weekend shift or anything like that, they seem to turn their, their nose up at, at that opportunity, whereas I'm sure you were pretty much like me and many others around that 
particular era that even though it was on the weekend, you were just grateful to get that opportunity to be working at, at a radio station. Oh, definitely. I still remember um, Maynard. He's <laughs> one time he um, he was desperate to read mid-dawns. He just wanted to read on 2UE because he was there at the same time I was. And and Clinton, as you know, is at 2UE now. Um, and it, it, Sandy kept saying to him, look, you're just not ready to do it yet, you know, soon. Keep keep practising. You, you'll be able to do it soon. And, and eventually the day came when Sandy said, all right, Clinton, I'm giving you a go. You can read mid-dawns. And he was so excited. He went and bought out, bought the biggest bunch of flowers he could for Sandy, <laughs> which today's world, there is no way I could imagine anyone going out buying flowers for the news director because they let, let them read uh, mid-dawns. <laughs> it's kind of considered a, a right that that's what you'll do. You As soon as you walk in the door, you're going to be reading straight away on a, on a prime shift, whereas back when we were coming through, you had to earn earn your stripes to even get a start on that, and to like you said, to to actually get a start on a on a weekend shift was considered fairly prestigious because it was a reading shift on the the number one radio station. Yeah, exactly, it was. And even if someone was sick, I remember um, working in the newsroom during the week, and if someone, one of the readers, was sick, it was such a big thing about who was going to fill in and be the newsreader on that shift, like for afternoons or something. You know, it was just, you know, there'd be people running back and forth. What did Breno say? Are they good enough? Do you think they are? Should we call so-and-so in? It was never just, okay, well, who's in here? All right, you can do it. You know, you'll be fine. It was just, you know, it would take half a day and, it, you know, before they decided who was going to read the news. It was just, you know, and no one got on air unless they'd had a lot of experience and they sounded good enough, like they had to be good enough. So I'm not saying that people aren't now, but, you know, there are things that go to air and that shouldn't go to air and, you know, it's a lot less stringent. Now talk to me about the move to... 2GB, Southern Cross came in and, and took ownership of 2UE when it was at its highest point. And looking back now, it's obviously the point where the the fall of 2UE happened because the owners didn't really rate Alan Jones and they didn't rate Ray Hadley as, as broadcasters. So mm-hmm. they were forced to, to move to 2GB, which then, you know, led to the, um, I guess, the resurgence of as 2GB as a, as a radio station, as a talkback station, because it always played second fiddle in, in those days to 2UE. You were just one of a, a number of people that, that came across when all of those things fell into place, when Singo encouraged Ray to come across and then got Alan Joes on board. Yeah, so because Breno was so instru- instrumental really in my career, I think um, I had a very good relationship with him. So when he moved across with them, um, he called me and said, um, I want you to come across and, and produce uh, Philip Clark in the drive show. So I, I thought about it and I think because it was Breno and I had such, I, just, I don't know, I just felt like, you know, because he just knew radio so well I just thought well if Breno thinks it's a good idea then it must be a good idea so it never actually occurred to me that I was leaving John Laws and then going to work with Philip Clark who obviously was not as well known and and didn't rate when he was doing breakfast on the um on 2GB but you know he he ended up being a great guy to work with and I learned from him as well but um 
so yeah, that's how I got across because Breno sort of said, and, and Breno said, there's somebody that you'll be really excited as well that's coming across um, to head up our news, which was Justin Kelly. So it was, and it was bizarre, bizarre on our first day there because it was like, oh, hello, hello, hello. So I kind of knew half the building already. So it just felt like a, a really good fit. And it was. I'm really pleased I did it. How did it work from your point of view in telling the legend that is John Laws that you're leaving his program to go and work for the other joint? Or was oh, it, did you have to? How, that, how did how did you have to put in your resignation? I'm fascinated oh, by that. that. That was so nerve wracking. Oh my gosh. So I because I got on well with Stuart. He was kind of he was the executive producer and I was the assistant producer. I got on really well with him, but. I, I thought I should really tell John. He should be the one I talked to, but I never really talked to him very much. Um, so it was I had to ask for a meeting with him. So I had to organise with Jody that I could meet with him before the program. So then she started questioning me, why? What do you want to talk about? And I, and I didn't want to tell her. So I just thought, you know what, I want to tell him myself directly. So I just said, look, I just, it's personal. I just would like to talk to him. And she said, right, because you're not going with everyone else, are you? And I said, oh, look, I just would like to talk to John at that time, if that's okay. So everyone in the office knew that I was going to have a meeting with John and everyone was looking at me as like, you know, what are you doing? And they weren't sure and they knew I was happy there. So they didn't, I think they thought you wouldn't probably leave. So anyway, I went in and I said, you know, thanks for the opportunity and this is what I've decided to do. I'm going to move across. And he said, all right then, well, good luck. And um, so anyway, and I did that and I think, I can't remember if it was after the program or before, but after the program I went and told the program director and um, he said, okay, that was Todd Haywood at the time. So he said, okay, and then I left for the day and I hadn't even got home and my brother rang me and said, what's happened? What I've just sent you an email and saying you no longer exist. And I was like, oh, so I'd just, I'd been completely cut off from the world of TUE at that time. So, and then got a call to say, don't bother coming in tomorrow. So I was like, Media oh. Media does it in such style, doesn't it? You know, there's <laughs> yeah, nothing quite uh, like You know, well, I guess it was kind of better than being marched out of the building, which sort of happened to a few of us at times. But I guess you kind of <laughs> build up the fact that sometimes when people yeah. decide to go to a, a rival uh, station that uh, that the cutoff is, is definitely imminent. It's just sometimes yeah. I think that they could do it with a little bit more style and grace and, and class yeah. than what they do. Yeah. So, yeah, so I ended up staying home. And and then just waiting to start the new job, which you know, which was great when I started at, at GB. But I, I kind of felt a bit like I needed a bit of closure from UE because I hadn't got to say goodbye to anyone. So, but you know, that's the way radio works. Often, as you, as you said, Ralphie. What was it like going from being an assistant producer to being? the main person in the hot seat at 2GB. So you were taking over a, a program from a guy that you'd never, ever met or never worked mm. with before and you were all of a sudden the boss of the program in many ways. Like the announcer is, like you said earlier, has the, the final say on on what goes to air and all of that kind of thing. But essentially as a an executive producer, you're responsible for the makeup of the program and how the how it's going to go for that particular day. What was what was that like stepping into a role like that? 
Uh, oh, it was exciting. And I felt because I'd had so much experience behind me and I'd learnt a lot. I'd learned a lot from Stuart. I think he was an amazing executive producer. So I felt I was ready for it. So I, I never, I was never in a situation where I was down. I was just like, okay, bring it on. Let's do this. And Philip was someone who uh, had, you could have a lot of fun with. Um, and he was very, kind of like in a, a fatherly figure in a way because he'd obviously have worldly advice about this and that and he'd done a lot in his career and life. So I just, you know, it was fun and I had the mad Siobhan Moylan. She's hilarious, um, as you know, Ralphie. Uh, she's just, you know, she was just, you know, full of energy and life and really passionate about, you know, getting into it as well. So it was a really good team to work to work with. We were a small team. It was just the three of us and I think we were the only one in the building that didn't have a window. But, you know, I, I think I've never worked in an office with a window. Um, <laughs> anyway, everyone else gets good views. I always worked in an office that never seemed to have a window. Anyway. What, but, was, yeah, what, so. was, what was it like trying to guide his path as well? Because, like you said, he was trialled on breakfast at, at 2GB. That didn't quite work out. And then the, the juggernaut of Alan Jones came in and then Philip had – to be put somewhere because he was still under under contract, but he was very much mm. in his way as a, an ABC presenter. What was it like trying to mould a guy to get him to, I guess, suit the style of, of commercial talkback radio? It wasn't that hard, actually, because he was really open to it, surprisingly, and I think because we got on well and I think he enjoyed the atmosphere. If you can get an announcer to be enjoying the atmosphere and, and you know, they're more open to trying new things, I think, if you if you can connect with them. And I think Shibby and I did well with connecting with him. So he was always, you know, excited to, okay, well, let's give it a go. There's some times when he wouldn't do something and we'd say, oh, I really think you should be covering this. And he'd be like, no, it's of no interest in it. And then, you know, three days later it's like just massive news and he's like, okay, we need to cover this. So there'd be some times where you'd really push and then, you know, you wouldn't get anywhere and then you, you eventually would but it was a bit late. But um, I don't know, he, he was good. But, you know, he's he's very he's a very intelligent man. So sometimes, you know, you'd be a bit daunted because he is a bit intelligent but sometimes that can be a bad thing, I think, in radio. Sometimes you need to not be so looking at things in a particular way. You need to look at it in different ways to get reaction. And just having that skill and ability to identify what a story is and trying to get a different angle on it. And there's a few people that I've spoken to on this podcast series before that have worked behind the scenes. And the difficulty that you would have faced in, in those days when Alan Jones and Ray Hadley were trying to build up their audience in the early days at, at being at, at 2GB, you would have kind of been like the, the third or fourth wheel when it came to interviews. So Alan and Ray probably would have had the choice of the interviews of the, the story of the day. So what was it like trying to work out how you were going to attack a story, knowing that you had to attack that story that was massive news of the day, but you had to have your own sort of take on it or had to have interview subjects that were not of the the highest order, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, we just um, we always just found a different point of view. So we just had to just, and I think that's where my news 
background really helped working in a newsroom and and learning a lot from others was that you know you've got your story and it's always going to move on you've but you've got to keep finding the new angle for it to move on so we would just kind of try to guess where it was going to head or find somebody else um that gave a different slant on it so that that's I guess how we would cover it but we also I often would say to announcers um okay I want you to write for me I do it every couple of months. Just write down for me all the people that interest you in the world of celebrities or authors, um, you know, and it doesn't have to be someone that's completely, you know, household name. It can be someone else. So they would write down like, you know, favourite authors, favourite TV hosts, favourite whatever was interesting. You know, if they had a hobby in, I don't know, stamp collecting, then, you know, put that down. I'd make them tell me all their interests and and the people that interested them. So once they gave me that list, I would divide it up between, so in this instance with Philip Clark, it was Shibby and I, or or I did it with Ray as well, and and so it would be between Sophie and I, and we would start chasing the people that interested them because not only do you obviously cover the news of the day, but we found, well, I always found that I think it's important to let their passion come through on the radio so if they're passionate about something, it's going to sound great radio. So if I can tap into their passions, which might not be newsworthy, but it can be an interesting interview. So whoever they were passionate about or interested in, I would follow them up. So I remember one was for Ray was um, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger or something and, and we got him, but that took me I think a year and a half for, to make that happen. So that interview just you know, I put in the request, you know, who's going to try for that? Like most people would go, oh, well, that's just ridiculous as if you're going to get in. And, you know, yes, you can have that mentality. But I just think if you just keep chipping away, which is what I did, and it didn't take much, just email the person, you know, once every two or three months. And then sure enough, this person eventually came back to me and said, you know, you've asked me so many times and and he interviews once every six months. And in that he'll only do four interviews. So because you've been chipping away, you can have the interview, So, which was just awesome. But it was funny because it came after that time, a couple of months after, when you remember how someone was caught out with someone pretending to be Arnold Schwarzenegger on air? Yes. Yes. So when I've said to Ray, I've got Arnold Schwarzenegger, he goes, oh, no, you haven't. How do you know? How do you know it's the real one? No, I'm not putting him on. I'm like, you've got to put him on. I've been chasing this for an, a year and a half. You're putting him on. So anyway, he, he did do the interview and it was definitely Arnold Schwarzenegger. But um, so, yeah, so I just I think that's one of the things to do like producers can do with with announcers is tap into their passion. I don't know. I'm sure some of them do. There's some that probably haven't thought to do that, maybe the younger ones. But that's a good way of getting some really good interviews because if they're passionate about it, then they're just going to, you know, ask the right questions and they're going to bring out um, some, you know, information from the interviewee in that people might not have normally got. I think that's a really great lesson for people that may be listening to this in terms of you just listen to the radio and you hear Ray Hadley or John Laws or Philip Clark speak to these famous people and you just they might think that it's just a case of just emailing their people and they get back to you the next day and then all of a sudden they're on the radio I don't think a lot of people understand that chase aspect of it is that like you said it can take months or even years to get some of these people to agree 
to do a five-minute radio spot. What sort of satisfaction do you get out of it when it does go well? Oh, a massive high. I love it. Like it's just, it would just be so, I just would love it. That that was, that's what I really aimed for is to, you know, lock someone in that, you know, I know is hard to get and, and it will be a great interview. Um, I think it was always interesting because working with John Laws, I just, out of anywhere I've worked in radio, that he just had so many people desperate to get on his show that were big celebrities. Like, they just wanted to be on his show, so you know, I never, I've never had that anywhere else. But I d- it's always stuck in my mind about how, you know, easy it was to get celebrities on his show, but also the amount that were desperate to get on the show. Now you moved from Philip Clark to work for Ray Hadley, and you sort of touched on a, a few times of the uh, things that you have to do when you when you work for Ray. What did you find the transition like? having already been in the building and heard all the stories and copped a few blow-ups when you were a younger journalist in the newsroom <laughs> at 2UE. How did you find that that experience when you stepped into that that role of the executive producer of the, the Ray Hadley show? It was interesting. Um, I remember the first time I ever met Ray was my first day on the job in the 2UE newsroom and Sandy was taking me around to introduce me to everyone and we stopped at the sports department and Ray's sitting there with his feet on the desk and, and his um, nose in a book. And uh, Sandy said, oh, Ray, this is our new journalist, Janine Tews, back then. And he just went, Meh, and didn't look up. And <laughs> I was just like, oh, my gosh, this man is the yeah. rudest man I've ever met. How can he not even acknowledge me? But anyway, not that I was anyone, but still, politeness. Anyway, I just remember at that point in time thinking, oh, gosh, I'm glad I don't ever have to work with him. And then sure enough, I ended up working with him. But um, I think that came about actually with me working with him was I was working with Philip and then I went to I think Trevor Long's engagement party and I was at there and um, Ray's wife then, Suze, came up to me and asked me if I would be interested in working with Ray. So I was like, oh, I, I, I guess so because, you know, it would be great to work with him. Um, and, then, and then I thought about it and I talked to Andrew about it and I said, oh, I just, I don't know, I don't know if it would be good because I've heard all the stories and I know what he's like. I just, I don't think that's, I don't know. And Andrew said, no, you'll work really well together because you're very calm and you'll balance him out. So I was like, oh. Okay, so I ended up working with him. But when I, when I talked to him about it, I said, look, you're obviously, um, you know, very adamant about what you want to do with the show and, and that's absolutely fine, but I don't want to end up being a secretary. So I don't want to sit there and get told, okay, this is what we're doing and you go and lock it in because that would bore me to tears. Like I'm, I like to come up with the ideas. That's the, that's the bit I love about the job is coming up with the ideas and tracking the people down. So he was agreeing that, yep, that's absolutely fine. And, and to his word, you know, the first day I started with him, he basically didn't say boo. He just let me do, run the meeting and and come up with the story ideas. And then he added bits, and and we ended up having a good working relationship. Um, I got to know what he liked, what he didn't like, um, and you know, and often I would try and change his opinion on something or make him see it a different way, and he would either agree or or 
or um, disagree, but he always listened, so that was good. Um, so yeah, it was it was a good working relationship, and um, uh, I, we had some great people in the of, office, like John Redman and Sarah McGillray and uh, Sophie and Sophie, his PA. She's lovely. So it was a really nice time, and and we were in our own office together. He was in another office, but. Um, it was just, yeah, it, it, we had a good team. Ray's made no secret of the fact that he, well, I wouldn't say copied, but he'd done a lot of things similar to, to John Law's um, in terms of how he was to build up his radio program and having filled in for Lawsy uh, when he was at 2UE when he was on break. He'd obviously worked out that that was the, the formula that he'd like to emulate and, and uh, take forward with his program. Having worked for them both, what are the main differences between them given the fact that the programs essentially were fairly similar? I think that I guess biggest thing that would stand out for me is Laws was very comfortable interviewing people um, in regards to like maybe a celebrity or maybe an author of a book or, you know, that sort of magazine feature style interview where it's it's not newsy but it's just of interest. Uh, and I thought Lawsy was really good at that. And, and even one of the things Laws got me to do was um, – I can't even remember what it was called, this segment we do on a Friday. And I basically, it was like Lawsy's Towns or something. And I had to find, because he went right around regional Australia, I had to pick places in regional Australia and find a story in that town that was interesting and that he could interview that person about, which I, I love doing that because it was a, a challenge. Anyway, and but just how he would bring the story to life and and interview these people that no one knew anything about but he made them so interesting and and it was great but so I just I feel I guess the difference I think was they both have very different interview techniques so I think Laws is a lot more relaxed in the his style whereas Ray's a a little bit more um what would you say um not not relaxed but just he you know, a lot faster. Yeah, yes, yes, that's the perfect word. <laughs> yeah, but that's not to say that it's 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 bad or anything. They're just different different styles. But that's the thing that I think sticks out the most, considering that we're similar. And I think one of the things that um, Laws did so well was he was kind of like the fix-it man. You know, if anyone had a problem, you know, they'll email the fortress and and he would get onto it. And and I think because he had this. Um, professionalism that the staff had to always all emails had to be answered and dealt with and I think um, Ray did the same thing as well and I think that really builds your audience something like that because you know emails would just be you'd be inundated with them and they're just out of control now I don't know how they keep up now but because if you imagine that not only are you connecting with people on air but you're going that extra step to connect with them off air and, you know, you're improving their situation because you're fixing a problem. Like it might have been a broken dishwasher and no one's helping and they've tried everywhere and, you know, something as simple as that. But, you know, John and and Ray would both ensure that it would get fixed and then that person is like, oh, wow, this these guys, you know, this person's amazing. They've just fixed my washing machine. And they will go and tell everyone. So then all of a sudden you've got not only, you know, reaching audiences on air, but you were also 
reaching off air as well. You met your husband at work. I did. Worked <laughs> with him at Chuyui, but there wasn't any sort of relationship there. But then when you both came across to 2GB, that's when our paths first crossed is when Andrew and I were working on the sports show, which came after the Philip Clark Drive program. Is it difficult to keep a relationship going in the working environment? Oh, I, I don't think so. I, I don't think it was. I think we were friends for a long time before we became in a relationship. But um, I just, I don't know, I just, I think when you you sort of separated it when you're in your, your, your program, so, you know, yeah. you work on a particular program and you really are in a little incubator. Like when I worked, like when I was in the newsroom, I, I felt like I, at TUE, I felt like I knew everyone in the building. And then as soon as I went into John Laws's office, I was really, I was in, in the office and I, I didn't venture out until I went to go home because, you know, I just, I just didn't. It was just was, you just was in your own little bubble. So I think you sort of work in your bubble and then we would often, as you know, Ralphie would, would, uh, a big group of us would go across to the pub after work and, um, and, you know, have a meeting. <laughs> Those meetings were legendary. They didn't sometimes <laughs> end until the next morning, very early. <laughs> I know, they were fun meetings. Uh, I think there was, who was there? There was um, Gemma, she's now at the Huffington Post, and Angus Huntsdale, he was the court reporter back then. And, yeah, there was a few of them, Shibby. Uh, that was fun. It was a really good time. Roger White, but Don Moxham, the traffic reporter, would never get invited to the <laughs> No, he was always dirty on you guys about that. And wasn't it your mum was so upset that um, you never invite that traffic? Uh, oh, my nan, my nan, God rest her soul, who's now since passed on, would always ask, why doesn't the traffic guy get invited to the meetings? Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Just, uh, they, were, they were definitely um, fun times. I don't know whether we'd have the same stamina to conduct those meetings now these days. <laughs> They were in our very young years. Um, just on that, how do you think that you would travel these days producing a program given the fact that the, the landscape and the, and the, the news cycle has, has changed so much? You mentioned earlier that you went off and, and have your two kids. How do you think that you would cope these days with the Facebooks and the Twitters and the, the fact that there seems to be a news program on every other half hour of the day these days? I think it'd actually probably be better because um, I, if, if you'd asked me just after my two children were born and, and they were about, you know, Eliza being four years old back then, I would have said, oh, I'm so out of the loop. I, I wouldn't know. But I think now because I've got Cataplog, so I'm really across all the different social medias. So I feel like I'm on top of that. I know what's happening there and, and how to make the most of them. And then, um, I think because I do the PR work as well, so I feel like I'm, I'm constantly on top of the news again because I'm always looking for a story to jump onto for my client. Um, so I feel like I'm actually, I'd probably be a better producer now if I went back. Um, not that I have any plans to ever go back, but I think it's a different world now. But I think I, I would be, I could, I could use the skills I've learned since. But if you'd asked me four years ago, I would have said, no, nah, I, I don't know. 
But I also sort of think that, yeah, while it, it may become easier now with, with social media to, to sort of get across things and try and find people, I kind of think now that you would kind of miss that old school chase where it might take you 84 phone calls to get hold of somebody for a three-minute interview, whereas today you could just find them on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Just that more mm. – I really enjoyed the the difficulty of the – the chase or, or the fact mm. that, you know, you used to have to go through so much just to get that interview, whereas I kind of think now that it may be a whole lot easier. Yeah, I think you're right because you, there is a bit of an adrenaline rush when you do finally track someone down and, and then and how you found them, you know, back then you would have gone through so many different avenues to find them. But I, I think you're right. It, it would be a quicker chase. Um but maybe we'd get the adrenaline from, you know, getting a story that no one else has because, you know, there's so much media out there now with online that to get something out before someone else tweets about it, you know, I think that would be a great rush, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mm. think that is probably where it is for producers these days. Um, you've mm. been very generous with your time and we'll wrap things up in a sec. But before we go, I just want to get some advice from you just in regards to anyone who's looking to break into the, the media world these days. How would you go about that? Oh, I'd still do the work experience and you know, especially if they want to go into radio, I would find out if you could come in on a weeknight when there's not many in the in the newsroom and come in on a regular basis. So maybe come in once on a Monday night, every Monday night and keep doing that. I remember Clinton was telling me a story once about, I think it was about two years ago when I was lecturing at uni. He was saying that um, he had a work experience girl that came in um, every weekend and worked all weekend is um, just to help the reporters and journalists and 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 then I think after about twelve months she said to him oh I just wanted to give you some notice in two months I have a wedding so I won't be able to come in on the Saturday oh, and she <laughs> she wasn't even getting paid and he said to me um, the, when the job came up he gave it to her and he said you know what. I know her. She knows the system, like the computer system we use. I know that she's reliable and I know that she's passionate. So there would have been a lot of other candidates that had applied for the job, but he gave it to her because she'd put the hard yards in. So I think if you put the hard yards in, it, it, you just, you'll never know where it'll take you. Like don't just go for the easy ride and just apply because there are jobs there. You know, apply for jobs but also go in and, and make it a regular thing. Don't just go in one day and, and that's it. You've done your work experience. Make it regular and go in when there's not many staff on so you're actually any help you could give is, is helpful. Janine Moore, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Ralphie. There she is, Janine Moore from Catablog and Publicity for Profit. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Janine, send her a tweet at Janine Moore. You spell Janine, J-A-N-Y-N-E. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, please leave a rating or review. That way more people will learn about the show. We haven't had one for a while, so get to it. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.